Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. It's so funny, when Jason was doing that, I thought about this earlier and said in the last service, I, I thought about the way I grew up saying recess peanut butter cups, and I heard somebody over here call it out the way I said it, the way Jason said it was Reese's. Did you grow up saying Reese's? So you know what Reese's is. That's the right way to say it, I think, even though it's not the, not the name of the word. But everybody knows the Christmas trees are the best ones. They have the right proportion of peanut butter and chocolate. They, and do you agree with me? They're the best of all the Reese's candies. That's the best. And we're not going to talk about taste in this season of the senses, talking about the essence of Christmas. But we are today going to talk about the sense that is like unto it. In fact, you don't have one without the other, and that is the sense of smell. So in preparation for that, I'd like you to take that envelope you have in your hand and just just hold it in your hot little hand, okay? Be ready, because in a moment, I'm going to give you an instruction. You'll want to make sure that you have it. Now, what I'm asking you to do is to come to your senses this Christmas. I mean to really take it in, to be very aware of what you're seeing, what you're touching, what you're tasting, what you're smelling, what you're feeling. I want you to be really aware of how you are occupying your body this Christmas because that is for us or can be for us a real reminder not only of the essence of Christmas but of the essence of Godness or the essence of humanity which in reality are more the same thing than we recognize. We can understand what it means to come to our senses and to be fully human in the way that Jesus was. Now, what I'm talking about here is the two-way street of the incarnation. Most often, and usually only at Christmas, we talk about incarnation as though it were just a one-way street. That God, in the Word, in His Son, became flesh among us, tabernacled among us. And we talk about what it means that God would come to earth in human form in order that we might be redeemed, in order that we might be restored. And that is a beautiful picture. It is, it is important that we understand the power of the incarnation. But for the early church and for the earliest Christians, when talking about the incarnation, a discussion was also being held about humanity and what it means to live according to God's plan, what it means to live as we were created to live. What I often say is that we like to think of Jesus as the superhuman, and we say, well, we're only human. That's our excuse. But in reality, what Scripture teaches us is that Jesus was fully human, that He was the abundant human, that He was everything that we were planned to be, intended by God to be in creation, and that sin and shame, the fall, have rendered us subhuman, something less than human, human-like, but not, not abundantly, fully present in the form that God intended us to be. So what would it mean to understand the incarnation in two ways. Now, I need to tell you this is not fresh. I've had several people tell me, man, this take on Christmas, it's really new. I mean, it's a brand new way of thinking for me. One person wrote me last week after watching on television and said, hey, I want you to know that sermon for me was the most impactful Advent sermon I've ever heard because it really did challenge me to understand the incarnation in a new way. This is a celebration of the incarnation far more than it is about the actual birthday of Jesus. But this is not fresh, and it's not new. 
It's just recovered. Because you see, in the writings of the early patriarchs and the thinking of the early matriarchs of the church, when we look back at eras the 4th and 5th century and earlier, we see that they almost always were preaching and writing about the incarnation. Almost every sermon that John Chrysostom preached touched on the incarnation. Almost every writing of one of the great patriarchs of the church, whether Augustine or others, touched on the incarnation in some ways. It was central to their understanding of the gospel, and it was a two-way street. Not only that God became incarnate, but that the purpose of God's incarnation in man, in the person of Jesus, was that we might recover what it means to incarnate the very presence of God. When I ask you to come to your senses this Christmas, I ask you to contemplate what it really means to be human as God created us to be. Now, when I think about the ancient writers of the early church and I think about the incarnation, I'm liable to think about one of the most important writings of the first 400 years of the church's history and one of the most important scholars from Africa of the church's early history. In fact, the one who became famous at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and who is more responsible than any other for two things. The first is our understanding of what it means for God to exist eternally in three persons. If you remember the Trinitatis series, you might remember my teaching on this patriarch of the church. He then also is more responsible than any other for the most important historic creed of the church, which is the Nicene Creed, which began to arise from that council in 325. And his name is Athanasius. Now, Athanasius, uh, dwelling from a, a part of the world that you don't often think of when you think of church scholarship, Athanasius of Alexandria wrote maybe the most famous book, if not Augustine's Confessions, of of the earlier church, and and that is the incarnation of the Word, written in the early fourth century. And in that book, he wrote this famous phrase, he became what we are that we might become what he is. He became what we are, that's the incarnation as we've understood it, God tabernacled with us, lived among us, God in a bod, God became human. But the purpose, Athanasius says, is that we might restore the image of God, that we might become what He is. Now, that's what we find in Scripture, but we are prone to miss it now in our era looking more for the divinity of God in Jesus than for what it means that He was fully human. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we're likely to capture the last part of what Paul writes and to preach about it, to talk about servanthood, what it means that Jesus took on the form of a bond servant or of a slave in order to serve humanity, in order to save humanity. But we miss its being rooted, that idea, in the nature of the incarnation. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul begins. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Bible, and if you want to use a study Bible alongside whatever your favorite translation is, the King James or the ESV or the NIV or whatever, if you hold alongside it the NASB, you'll perform a service to yourself because it is definitely word for word the most accurate modern English translation. Anyway, well, why don't we use it in worship? And the answer is that it's being so accurate makes it also very wooden. 
really hard to read publicly, kind of choppy, though this phrase is not. I choose it here so you'll see the actual words, a little different than the NIV I read last week. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. It captures something different than in very nature God, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, his humanity is so important here. His, his, his incarnation as a full human, because otherwise death is not possible. And it is integral to the gospel story that Jesus died with our sins on his shoulders, that his death on a cross provides for our forgiveness so that his resurrection might restore the image of God in us, might recreate us and make us fully human again. This is so important that if we miss it, we miss all of the gospel. Why did the early writers speak so much of the incarnation? Because there is no gospel apart from it. There is no meaning in the Christian faith apart from the power of the incarnation. When we see these words that Jesus existed in the form of God, we are translating just one Greek word, and that Greek word is the word morphe, which you may recognize because it's similar to some English words, but morphe means essential form, discernible essence. That is, it is something that can be sensed It can be seen, it can be touched, it can taste, it smelled, it can be heard. This is something that was discernible to us so that God becomes incarnate among us is to say God becomes known to us in the person of Jesus, actually known like you know somebody that you truly love or the person sitting next to you right now. So John writes in chapter 1, verses 4, 14 and 18, I'll read a little less than I did last week, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His beauty or His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him discernible has made him sensible, has made him known to us. So last week I also introduced Paul's two-way street of incarnation in Colossians 1.15. You could say that Athanasius' famous statement is really just this all over again. The Son is the very image of the invisible God and... He is the firstborn over all creation. Therefore, He is our ancestor in the faith. We are recreated in His resurrection, and we are fully human by God's power and the sixth sense presence of the Holy Spirit, if you will. We are now becoming again everything God planned for us to be. So what really, my friends, at Christmas does it mean to inhabit the senses? Does it mean to be human? to be reminded that there is something of the image of God in the way we actually work around and work through and work among the world in the way we sense it. 
In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, we all with unveiled faces because sin and shame has been removed now, the barrier by the death of Jesus removed. Forgiveness allows that that veil might fall away, and with unveiled faces we contemplate the Lord's beauty or His glory, and we're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing beauty, ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let's think for a moment about one more of those senses. We began last week with sight, and I, I think you could almost stop there. There's nothing more powerful than that, but this one's a, a little more fun. Let's see if you can get it with me. So you know Christmas carols pretty well, I assume, right? I learned last night, not everybody does, but you know all the Christmas carols. So, so let's, see, let's see if you know this one. So I'm going to start. You're going to finish. You know how this works, okay? So Scott, can you help the congregation a little here? Sing boldly. Said the night wind to the little lamb. Okay, that's a little lame. We're going to try that again. Scott didn't help you enough. Okay, let's, let's, let's try that again, and I'm going to sing it with you this time so that we get it together, okay? Said the night wind to the little lamb, do you smell what I smell? Oh, you don't know that verse? Oh, well, that's, that's a new verse. I'll give you, but it should be there. It should be in the song. I mean, could you just think for a moment with me about how Christmas smelled? But let's start by, by thinking about how it smells. So this is more familiar to us. We weren't there the night that Jesus was born. And uh, unless you've traveled there, you haven't been in a cave in Bethlehem that houses are built over the stable where Jesus was born. So you don't know some of those odors. So let's, let's take some familiar smells. So take that envelope that you have in your hand. And now is the time. I give you my permission to open your envelope to be revealed what is inside so that you can sense it. Told you to get one, Tiger. Okay, so you have one of four scents in your hand. Now, this is a scratch and sniff sticker. It is made by a company called Dr. Stinkies. I'm not kidding about this. We really work to find these. I'd like you to scratch it, and I'd like you to smell it. I know what I have. Do you know what you have? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you and all of you together at one time, tell me boldly, this is the smell I identified. What do you smell? One, two, three. Okay, you're right. That's what it is. Some of you smell gingerbread. Come on now, nothing says Christmas like gingerbread. I love it. Some of you smelled sugar cookies, which actually I got that one this time and it smells like vanilla. Am I right? I don't like vanilla. Okay. Dr. Stinky needs to work on that one. Okay. So <clears throat> some of you got the one I got last service. This one's really Christmas, man. This is balsam. Did you get that one? Debbie and I were uh, hiking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire on our 13th wedding anniversary. It's a long time ago now, I'm sad to say. And, uh, and, and while we were there, it was a cold morning in August because that's high elevation, you know, north, it's a beautiful place. We're hiking up this mountain, and the smell of balsam was so overwhelming that when we drew to this one little spot, Debbie just stopped, and she said, do you smell it? You couldn't miss it. I said, yeah, I smell it. She goes, it smells like Christmas. It felt like Christmas. It, something about that odor just drew you in, and August felt like December all of a sudden. How many of you got balsam? Did you get that one? And you smell it. Does it smell like Christmas? It smells like Christmas. Some of you got peppermint. 
I guess peppermint's good any time of the year, but if you got pepper, okay, here's what we're going to do, okay? Find someone who's got a different sticker than you and trade it with them. Scratch again, scratch again, and sniff, sniff. Yum. Does it smell good? Okay, was this one better or worse than the last one? All right, all right, try one more time. Trade with someone who has one different than you've smelled yet and, and scratch and sniff again. Okay? Now you, my friends, you have smelled Christmas right here in your church. And so I ask you now, boy, you're into this smelling. Do you smell what I smell? Think about that first Christmas. We don't often read stories in the Bible and try to smell them, but we should because there are scents, as I'm going to point out in a moment, all over the Bible. And you know what it would have smelled like in that stable with the animals, underneath the house, in the croft, in the cave. Caves have a smell. And caves full of animals have a smell. Animals, not just animals, but human beings. Humans have a smell. Now, in our day and time, especially if you're a teenage boy about 15, 16 years old, you shower three or four times a day. But we have an odor, and that odor's detectable. You don't realize this, but right now, one of the ways that you are present in the room is that you are sensing the people around you. We've been taught, we've now learned, neuroscience has shown us that certain ways our brain is activated when we're around other people allow us to attach to them or be repulsed by them, and a lot of it is based on smell. Debbie's a big thrift shopper. I... I'm all for her thrift shopping. I can't walk into those places. The smell for me of humanity is just overwhelming. And in that stable, in that place where Jesus was born, what you smelled was humanity. It smelled like a French subway car. That's what it smelled like. If you've been to France, you know what I mean. In the last service, I didn't say this because I didn't even think about it, but we had a a former Colombian visiting with us, which is always so fun. Although I got to tell you, over 21 years, man, I was telling Chris the other day, we found out about somebody's moving and both of us were kind of weeping and grieving. And I said, brother, if half the people stayed who'd been here in this 21 years, you wouldn't believe it. I said, if you're going to be in your position, because now you're a pastor, you're going to think about this, get used to the grief. It's part, of being, it's part of being in Washington. It's part of being at Columbia. But when we were talking about this, I said, but you know, these people keep up with you through the years. Yesterday, our Christmas card collection, all the cards that came in were from former Colombians. And I was saying to Debbie, man, look what's happened in the lives of these families. Well, one of them visited with us today, not who had gotten a card from yet, but one former Colombian who happens to be a doula, birth mother. And I was showing her the new building and she said, hey, I got to tell you something about your sermon, which I, she said, I loved it, but you missed one thing about the birth of Jesus, and that is, let me tell you something, human birth has a particular smell. It has a particular odor. I said, I'm not sure I can talk about that. She said, you should, because it's the smell of humanity. It's the smell of humanity. And that's how Jesus' birth smelled. So when you read the story, are you sensing what is there? Do you know what's there? If you don't, you're missing a lot.
You read through the Old Testament and you see <clears throat> how many references there are to smell. Some of them in the festivals that I just preached about and in other things, but a lot of them having to do with God smelling, which I think is a little weird to talk about. I, I'm always hesitant to anthropomorphize God, and yet I do know that humans are in God's image, so everything about us must say something about God. And, and that must be particularly the case in our capacity to smell. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, all of it is captured in the Levitical law. It carries all through the Psalms. It's all over the place how often God smells the worship or the sacrifice of His people. Now, it's all captured here. A sacrifice is to be a burnt offering, a food offering, a, a what? An a, aroma, an odor that is pleasing to the Lord. Well, you'll say to me, Jim, that's symbolic. That's just symbolic. I mean, that's a way of understanding how God partakes of our praise. But really what we're doing is just talking about our own senses as a way to understand God, and I'm prone to agree with you for the most part, but then I run into something like the Lord's Word in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 27 and 28, when the Lord says, through the author of Deuteronomy, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples where you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone that cannot see or hear, or eat, or what? Now, God's saying, I'm not this. These things of stone and wood can't smell. But I read this to say that God says He can. And I don't understand that. It's mysterious and beyond my comprehension. But have I missed something by not noticing what God says about God's self in the Bible? Does God actually smell our worship? Does He smell us when we're together? You know, odor is a powerful thing. I think we've always known this. I mean, before anybody proved it scientifically, we've always known that smells did certain things for us, right? I mean, a smell, can't a smell take you back for a, to a distant time, a distant memory, and you can't put your finger on Have you ever had this happen? You can't put your finger on it at first, and you go, huh. And then you process for a moment. You go, oh, I was five years old in my mother's kitchen when I smelled that smell. Or I was in my church. Let me tell you something. Churches have a certain smell. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. I was there more than I was at home. I was awake more there than I was at home anyway. I was one of those precocious kids. I, I crept through every square inch of the church my dad pastored. Every, I was in the attic. I was in the basement. I was everywhere I wasn't supposed to be. But what I can tell you is this. Churches like ours have a smell. Are you with me on this? I do not know if that is the smell of the people who occupy it on a regular basis, though that's certainly got to be part of it. I don't know if it's the smell of covered dish suppers or Jacob's cooking. I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's the mold in the basement. I'm going to tell you it's partly that. Whatever it is, if you blindfold me and kidnap me, don't take me to a church. Because if I'm able to holler out to anyone, I'll say, I'm in a church. I would know that smell anywhere. And I'm processing it when I walk in the door. I have a feeling when I walk into Columbia. After 21 years, I know the smell of every square inch of this church. And I know the smell of its people. And you do too, though. You don't know you do. You are processing it right now. Did you know smell has been found to be one of the most powerful forces that bonds people who love each other together? 
I'm talking about parents and children. Now, we all know you love the smell of a baby. How many of you remember the smell of your newborn? Huh? Man, I tell you, when I get a grandchild, the first thing I'm going to do is sniff its head. <laughs> I love that smell. I mean, I love that smell. I just, how often do you smell that smell? Like every day, right? You take care of a little baby, so it's a beautiful smell. It's a magnificent smell. I, I can't even explain it. It's just, you smell it, you know it's a baby. But, but we also know the smells of our spouses, and more than we know we do. I was walking into uh, our bedroom one time, and I'd left a shirt on the floor. Debbie was picking it up, and she doesn't remember this. We were talking about it the other day, but she, was, she had it to her face. Now, this is not something Debbie often does, though I do it all the time. Men sniff their clothes before they put them in the hamper. You got me on this, guys? Right? Am I right? Am I right? Debbie goes always, what are you doing? I, this is a man thing. This is what we do. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. It's instinctive, and I can't help it. I don't know. But anyway, she was smelling this thing, and, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, it smells like you. Do you know what I mean? A friend of mine who lost a loved one recently said that he stepped into his wife's closet and stood there for an hour just to smell her, just to remember her. That was a sad smell for him, but a happy one at the same time. Smells do something to us, and now neuroscientists have shown why. When we see something, it's processed by one part of our brain. As long as that part of your brain's not damaged, you'll be able to see if your eyes are healthy. And when we hear things, it's processed by a couple of other parts of the brain too. But basically, one section of the brain processes what we hear. When we touch, there's one part of the brain that processes that. When we taste and when we smell, neuroscientists have shown that multiple places in the human brain light up. Something is going on that smell permeates the entirety of our brains. First, the part we are unconscious of, and then we become conscious of what we're smelling. It's powerful. There must be something about that that is in some way godlike. What it means to be in the image of God. Now, I know you say, well, wait a second, Jim. Don't ever take the body and talk about God. You do recognize the Bible says you will occupy a body forever. You're not some float-away spirit. You're going to have a heavenly body, and then you're going to have a resurrection body and the new heaven and the new earth. You can start praying now about things that are better about your next body than the one you have now because none of us loves our own body for the most part, despite what Paul said. But whatever the case may be, there is something about the body. See, the incarnation is God's ultimate statement that life in the body is precious and beautiful. It's this statement that it's not just a throwaway thing. From inception to the grave and beyond, life is precious. It is infinitely precious, and the incarnation is the ultimate statement that that is the case. Do you smell what I smell? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, again in the New American Standard, Paul carries forward this idea that's captured all throughout the Old Testament of God smelling the sacrifice of His people. But in this case, that sacrifice is not a burnt offering. It's something else. So Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, you've got to notice that imitators of God is there first. You have to notice that. Because this is about the way we incarnate the presence of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ 
also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a what? Fragrant aroma. (laughs) This is overkill, Paul. If something is fragrant, it's an aroma. And if something's an aroma, it's fragrant. But Paul uses two words to drive this point home, that there is something that God senses about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'll show you in a moment this carries over to us. Do you smell what I smell? Do you smell the Christmas story? Now, I don't mean just the night that Jesus was born. That's fun to think about. But not just shepherds, but do you smell what the author intends for you to smell? There's a secret code in the Gospel of Matthew. Secret to you anyway, because in our modern day, you haven't learned or remembered how to smell what the Bible smells. There's a secret code that in Matthew's day would have been readily understood by his readers, and it is wholly captured in the olfactory senses, in our capacity to smell. Let me see if you see it. Do you know the story of the three magi? (laughs) It's a a good story. I mean, I've always gone, you know, Matthew, I, I don't know why you include that in the birth narrative. They didn't show up until later. Uh, they're still chasing the star when Jesus is born. Despite our nativity scenes, we always try to put the wise guys a little far off, you know, like they're coming in, they're on their way, they're not there. Why is it in the birth narrative? And here's what scholars tell us. They'll say, well, Matthew included the story of the Magi for a couple of reasons. Here are the top two. I've preached about this before, but just in case. So the first one is to explain and help you understand the flight to Egypt, the prophesied flight to Egypt escaping Herod's wrath. And so, it is the story of the Magi that gets, gets the story of Herod in, doesn't it? As the Magi visit with Herod, and Herod tells them, tells them to find the baby, and then they discover that he's going he's gonna to kill every one-year-old child trying to get to the Messiah. And that's how we get this part of the story, and how we get the prophecy, in fact, about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That's, that's in the story of the Magi. So, so they said, it's partly about this flight to Egypt, the recapitulation of the wilderness wandering, etc. It's a deep idea or understanding. I, I think that's right. I mean, I have no doubt. They say the other second reason they'll say is because, is because this is how we see that others beyond the faith read the prophecies and believed them. So we've got these magi who are Zoroastrian, perhaps, or some other faith, and they're coming from this what at the time would have been considered an ancient eastern land. Now, now those places seem close to us, but, but on a camel or by foot, long way. So they're coming from a faraway place to say that the whole world celebrated the birth of Jesus. But what many scholars these days don't talk about is the smell of this story. But the early Christian fathers and mothers talked about this all the time. Well, let me see if you catch it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, surely familiar to you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard that he was, that he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him because Herod's in a rage, and when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born And they answered, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet has written in Bethlehem of Judea. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then King Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star They had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, or in the King James, exceedingly glad. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Do you smell what I smell? Years, years later, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow would write a poem about this that would become famous and is to this day. And in that poem, he would speak of these three wise men, because since there were three gifts, he said there must be three men. And he would He would speak of them with their traditionally uttered but not biblical names, and he titled his poem simply The Three Kings, the first verse of which reads like this. Three kings came riding from far away, Melchior, uh, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Three wise men from the east were they, and they traveled by night and they slept by day, for their guide was a beautiful, wonderful star, and they laid their offerings at his feet later in the poem. The gold was the tribute to a king. The frankincense with its odor sweet was for the priest, the paraclete, and the myrrh for the body's burying. Now, I don't think Longfellow was any sort of a biblical scholar, but scholars would agree with him on his interpretation of the three gifts, this code, and its significance. Now, gold's not a hard one, really. Gold bespoke royalty in that day, even if it does today. It was the most precious of metals in the ancient world. Little bits and pieces of it were often shaved off and used as currency, especially when you cost state lines. So the tradition is, the longstanding tradition of the church is, that it was that gold given by those three magi that financed the flight to Egypt. They spent it on the way and on the way back. Maybe. Who knows? But far more interesting are the odoriferous gifts of frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh are biochemically similar. In fact, they are drawn from, refined from, sap that comes from the wounds in bark in East Africa and Southern Arabia from whence the Magi are thought to have come. And there are these priestly families, if you will, because The ancients, even in the first century, thought that these substances were divine. What came from that bark was divine. This is kind of like maple syrup harvesting, except more precious. And they would draw this sap and refine it, these priestly families, and they would abstain from certain activities that were considered dirty during the season of harvest from start to finish. Kind of like these shepherds, you remember, who raised the ceremonial lambs out of Bethlehem did the same thing. And because, because the refinement was so difficult and the, and, and the sap was 
was so precious and, and so rare, and, and because the whole process took so much, these were incredibly valuable substances. Frankincense was valuable. It was, it was put, and still is, you should know, in lots of perfumes. In fact, almost every perfume in the ancient world had a trace of frankincense in it because that would give it staying power, allow it to linger. Frankincense was delicious smelling, most people thought, though I find it smells a little odd now. It's just not something to which I'm accustomed. It's powerful, strong, overwhelming. You may have smelled it at the beginning of the service. I think it might have run a few of you out for a few minutes. It almost did me. But myrrh is far more precious. The refining process is much more difficult, and it's taken from the finest of the sap. And Myrrh has antiseptic qualities and anesthetic qualities, so it can kill pain and also it preserves things. And for that reason, the primary use of myrrh in Jesus' day, and everybody knew it, the primary use was to embalm bodies for burial. So in places like Syria, Egypt, other places in the ancient far and near east, people embalmed bodies with myrrh before placing them into their tombs, preparing them, they thought, for an afterlife. And while then the frankincense spoke to Jesus' priestly presence, His purifying presence, like frankincense was used to, 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 to cleanse the temple and to cleanse other places of worship, even as it still is today, myrrh was used in Jesus' day primarily to embalm those bodies. When King Tut's tomb was discovered in Egypt in 1922, there was a big celebration when the tomb was opened, when it was cracked. And, and of course, as you know, King Tut's remains were, were found almost intact. I mean, it was an amazing discovery, amazing find. And when the tomb was opened, the researchers who stood at the entrance, several of them passed out. They were so overwhelmed by the wafting scent of myrrh, so taken aback by how smelly it was inside that tomb because this wealthy man was given so much myrrh. But do you recognize how frequently myrrh occurs in the biblical narratives, the Gospels. So there's Jesus' birth, of course. And what Matthew wants you to know is that when Jesus is wrapped in those swaddling clothes, it is like unto the shroud that will Sunday encompass his body once he dies and before he rises. And he wants myrrh to be a reminder to you that Jesus knew the smell of death, that Jesus understood the pain of death, that Jesus knew the smell of life. He, he knew the smell of difficulty in this world. That's what the incarnation means. So myrrh is a reminder of death right at Jesus' birth. It's a strange gift. I mean, it's like you have a baby shower and someone shows up with a bottle of embalming fluid. That's what this is. Precious though it is. Myrrh keeps occurring in the story. All three of the synoptics include a, an amazing story about a woman who breaks an alabaster jar and bathes Jesus in perfume. Do you know the story? Do you remember that the apostles were upset about it? They're like, this is ridiculous, you know. And what was that perfume? It was nard, and, and nard was a mixture of honeysuckle, in essence, by what we know, 
and a little frankincense. That's what it was. And so Jesus' body is anoint, uh, uh, anointed with one of these substances at the beginning, biochemically very similar to myrrh. And so right there in that room, he's overwhelmed with that smell. The apostles are upset, and Jesus says, don't be upset. They're celebrating while the bridegroom is here, and they're anointing my body for burial. And this woman will be remembered for generations to come because the gospel writers will include her story. No, because she has done this to me. When Jesus raises Lazarus, he is absolutely certainly anointed with myrrh. Take away the stone. The stone's taken away. And by then, the smell of death was all over it, the people said. But part of that scent would have been the smell of myrrh. Here's the best one. Jesus hangs on the cross, and a soldier, following a common Jewish practice, gives him what's called galled wine. One of the evangelists actually tells you what that is. He says, it's vinegar laced with myrrh. And he raises the myrrh to Jesus' lips, but Jesus does not drink from it. But he smells it. On the cross, as he rises in agony, he smells the scent of myrrh. He has known his entire life, and he knows it is the scent of death. And then the best of all, on the morning that Jesus told them he would rise, on the third day, three women, you know the story well, they go to the sepulcher, they go to the tomb, and the purpose of their going is to do what? Do you remember it? to anoint. There hadn't been time to anoint the body, to wrap it in claws laced with what? Myrrh. There is an ancient tradition. It goes back to the early church. So, I would say it's likely true, but it's not in the Bible, so we usually don't pay attention to things. I'll tell it to you anyway. And the tradition is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, going to the tomb, carried with her the same myrrh that was given to her by the Magi at Jesus' birth, All those years, she'd pondered these things in her heart. What does it mean that this son of mine, fully divine, is also fully human? And suffering this agony, she carries myrrh to the tomb, almost certainly carries myrrh, to anoint his body for burying, only to discover the tomb empty and the Lord risen. And the power of myrrh, or death, conquered once for all. What does it mean that Jesus knew the smell of death from his birth? I think it's comforting. Jesus knew the same pain you do. Now listen, sooner or later, your Merry Christmas will become a Murray Christmas. It's a matter of time. It could be because of your own illness, your own dying body. Before then, it is likely to be the remembrance of someone lost. And when these beautiful scents of Christmas do nothing but bring pain to you, when you remember Christmas is gone by, beautiful memories but painful to lose, part of being human is to know the sting of death as Jesus did so that resurrection becomes possible as it was for him. Part of being human is to experience pain. And Jesus, he sensed it too in the same way you do. Sometimes he smelled things that reminded him 
of the deep pain he felt from his birth. He knew the stench of death. This continues in the Bible, though, where Romans 12.1 reports to us the words of Paul, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We might miss the scent in this were it not for other writings of Paul, like 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, when he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and urges us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere, the smell of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God a, what? Pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. By which Paul means the same thing as when he says, we carry within us always the death of Christ, that we might also carry within us the life of Christ. Dead to self, alive to Christ, we're being restored to humanity, full humanity in the resurrection to everything God planned for us, and not just for a moment, but for eternity. And now we see the two-way street, the two-way smell of the incarnation, the smell of God to humans, and the smell of humans to God, and the smell of humans to each other. Don't miss this. I'll I'll just tell you, I'll talk about this again next week when I talk about touch. I'm okay if once in a while you want to watch this on TV. But don't do it often because you're missing more than you know. There's a reason the author of Hebrews says, don't fail to gather together. Don't fail to collect yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. And that is because when you're sitting there together, you are sensing each other. There's touch and there is smell and there's the sound of voices and there's something that happens to God's people. When we raise ourselves in worship together, the collected body of Christ has a scent to God and it has a scent to us. But the two-way street is that we are the smell of Jesus Christ to those around us. To be human is to incarnate God's presence. To be fully human is to incarnate the presence of God. So, my friends, there will be a lot of presence, P-R-S-E-N-T-S, for you this year. You will give a lot, you will receive a lot, and some of them will have a smell. Will you agree with me that there's nothing else quite like it on earth? Nothing smells quite like fruitcake. It may as well be myrrh to me. Nothing smells quite like it. But don't get lost in the PR. E-S-C-N-T-S, because the real miracle of Christmas is the presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, of God in our world, and the presence of us to each other, the presence of us to those who need desperately to know what Jesus smells like, to know what the death and resurrection of Christ smell like how we really sense it, how we really live it. To be human is to incarnate God's presence. So come to your senses this Christmas, for goodness sake. Occupy it 
Understand it. Understand the two-way street of the incarnation and see the card on the fruitcake that reads, He became what we are, that we might become what He is. So, Heavenly Father, might we become what You are by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus' resurrection. We thank You for the forgiveness that has come to us and can come to anyone who calls on Jesus' name through His cross, His death, through the myrrh lifted to His nose, His nostrils, the smell of death, because He bore our sins on His shoulders. We are fully and completely forgiven. All we have to do is ask. And thank You, Lord, that on the third day He rose to recreate humanity in Your image. Thank You that Jesus was fully divine on earth, but thank You, Lord, that He was fully human so He could restore us to Your image so He could restore humanity of which we're a part. And now, Lord, this Christmas, help us to fully occupy our senses and to incarnate Your presence in a lost and broken world where people have lost any sense of what it smells like to know eternity. You've conquered myrrh forever in Jesus. And so we thank You, Lord, that this is for all of us a Murray Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. My dear friends, together we are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.